Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello, and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and I am joined by my co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing today, Nathan? Oh, I'm good, Clinton. How about yourself? Uh, doing pretty good. Um, getting getting ready for, uh, for Christmas coming up here in about, uh, what, nine days? Or so. Oh, that's right. It's a week from what Wednesday? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> Look yeah. at me, sounding like a Scrooge. I don't even know what day it is. <laughs> well, as long as you don't start saying "bah humbug," I think we'll be okay. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, the guests, for joining us as well. Uh, we actually have a, a special guest joining us today, and uh, this guest we have joining us is Steve Jacobs. Dr. Stephen Andrew Jacobs, JD, PhD, graduated from the University of Chicago's Department of Comparative Human Development in 2019. As a graduate student, he completed Northwestern University School of Law's two-year accelerated JD program. His dissertational research revealed that 96% of biologists affirm the view that a human's life begins at fertilization. His research has garnered national news coverage from outlets such as Quillette, Breitbart, the Daily Wire, and One America News Network. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. How are you both today? Oh, we're doing pretty good. Oh, I'm doing great. Good. Yeah, we're excited to have you on with us. So we are recording. Oh, yeah, thank you. So we're recording this show live, and so if you have a question for Steve, you can call in at 646-668-8257. Once again, that number is 646-668-8257. Uh, and no have... Kanye West impersonations this time. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so if you're listening, Elijah, that means you. Um, yeah, so the, uh, the topic that we have for today is we're going to talk about Steve's dissertation and some of the backlash that he's received from biologists and, uh, and others. Uh, so, Steve, the first question I generally I generally like to ask our guest is uh, why uh, why are you pro life? What was kind of your uh, your journey to becoming pro life? 
So I think I'm reminded of the quote in uh, Scott Kusendorf's book, um, something to the effect of that, you know, most people are willing to do just enough uh, in the pro-life movement to save their conscience, but not enough to actually stop the killing. So for me, I, I was pro-life in terms of recognizing it as a form of homicide, recognizing it as something, you know, I wouldn't recommend somebody to do. Uh, to actually wanting to research this and promote, you know, better understanding on both sides of the debate. Because as far as I was concerned, I think the truth and I think science leans pro-life. I thought it was a matter of just freeing up a lot of the obfuscation, a lot of the misleading rhetoric, uh, misleading euphemisms. So I felt like just bringing truth to the debate would actually make it, you know, lean more pro-life. Um, so for me, it would probably be undergrad when I studied ethics. I took a series of philosophy courses, and I just when when I learned about human rights and I learned about personhood, I just saw that uh, the abortion debate was ripe for um, you know bringing some philosophical concepts to help uh, the abortion rights movement understand uh, that there is a need for fetal life. All right, good deal. Uh, now I'll just point out for for the listeners that uh, all of the articles and and you know blog articles and uh, research studies and everything we mentioned here on the podcast uh, will be will be uh, posted in the show notes. So if you want to follow up on anything mentioned here, you'll be able to see those websites for yourself. Now um, before we begin, I just like to kind of review some of your findings a little bit. I, I read the the article that you wrote for Colette. And uh, or uh, was or it might not have been the Colette article. It might have been uh, the other one on on the consensus on when life begins. But in one of your your articles, you you basically uh, summarized the information that you discovered. And so you used an Amazon service to survey people about their views regarding abortion, and found that 82% of Americans believe that when life begins is an important aspect of the debate. 76% believe Americans deserve to know when life begins to make an informed choice on the issue, and that a full 93% of Americans believe that an, that an individual deserves full legal protection once his life begins. So that, that's a pretty, uh, pretty expansive uh, number of Americans there that, that take this issue. But on top of all of the, uh, the lay, uh, I guess you can call them lay Americans regarding the science, um, that after that, you surveyed biologists at over 1,000 institutions and discovered that 96% of them affirmed that life begins at fertilization. That's 5,337 of the ones that you surveyed, and only 240, or 4%, rejected this view. And of all the biologists who were sampled, 89% were liberal, 85% were pro-choice, 63% were non-religious, and 92% were Democrats. Does that about uh, cover the findings? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so uh, so the kind of the first question that popped into my mind was that according to the questionnaire you sent out, 96% of the biologists agreed that life begins at fertilization, uh, but why did the other 4% disagree, considering how strong the scientific evidence for it is and considering that there's such a huge consensus among biologists and embryologists that life begins there? Judging from their essay responses uh, to certain open-ended questions, as well as their emails and, you know, some biologist attempts to get me kicked out of grad school. Uh, so some of them actually reached out to my department, 
saying I wasn't deserving of my PhD and that I should be, you know, summarily dismissed from the school. So judging from those kinds of responses, you know, if, if some people were willing to go that far, then other people were willing to just answer the questions dishonestly. So, I mean, as to whether or not an academic biologist who spent years in undergrad studying biology and then years in grad school and then years teaching it, as to whether or not they, they couldn't understand the biological view that a human's life begins at fertilization, I mean, it, it might be one of those things you can't get 100% to say that the sky is blue. Um, as for uh, whether or not uh, they were answering honestly or dishonestly, that, that's, that's more speculation. I shouldn't get too much into that realm, but as far as I'm concerned, it's a pretty convincing, a pretty compelling uh, consensus, uh, especially, you know, you could cut the data basically any way you want. I, in my dissertation, I have tables with, I think it's over 60 categories where if you look at atheist biologists, if you look at biologists with one kid versus four kids, if you look at high income, low income, basically any demographic category you can imagine, and still in each category, it was you know an overwhelming majority affirmed the view that a human's life begins at fertilization. So in terms of the biological view, it's not only is it virtually uncontested, there are no other alternative uh, scientific views. So you might hear somebody say, you know, from an ideological perspective or from a legal perspective, a human's life begins at viability or consciousness or sentience. But in terms of a scientific view, whereby they reject the notion that, let's say, a single-celled uh, zygote or, you know, a five-week um, fetus, a five-week uh, embryo wouldn't be a human, because of some scientific theory, you won't encounter that. And this was even something in uh, 1981 when they had a Senate hearing in connection with the Human Life Amendment. Uh, one doctor said that he couldn't find one alternative scientific theory uh, that opposed the view that a human's life begins at fertilization. Hmm. You know, you said that also the few people did write to you in the essays uh, with that. And I remember you posted some of those in your Quillet article uh, what were some of the most common objections that you got? I mean, I remember seeing in your Quillette article, you showed a couple that they said, oh, you're just a religious fanatic, or I think one person even said, oh, you're just a uh, pro-Trump uh, person or whatever. I mean, some really silly stuff, but uh, what were some of the more common objections that you did get? I mean, I've heard uh, you talk on other podcasts telling your story about how this all came up. Uh, some of the people who just wrote and tried to shut down your study and everything uh, what were some of the most common objections that you got to even proposing the question? Yeah, so some, some had suggested it's not a biological question or that human wasn't a scientific category. You know, there, there was a pretty broad range of some just being like silly sophomoric responses, you know, somebody accusing me of being a member of the Ku Klux Klan or, you know, like you said, that Trump came up with my survey. Um, ranging from that to some people just kind of willfully misinterpreting the question. So I had a lot who said that human life uh, began 5.7 billion years ago, you know, conflating <laughs> the difference between when all life began and when an individual human's life began. So, I mean, that, I guess you, would, you could say that was one of the more substantive objections that they were trying to say that all 
that life has no starting point, that it's continuous. But, I mean, an honest discussion about these concepts reveals that while, while there is a common thread of life that, that where we, whereby, you know, everybody had um, a common ancestor, that's a very different claim from saying when you, Nate, as an individual, when your organism first began, you know, when that organism first took shape, when the, for the first time in all of history there was an organism with your genetic code, we know that that is an actual point in time, right? And so we don't, we, even if you could trace it back billions of years, uh, your life had a very clear starting point, and that was that fertilization. Hmm. Yeah, that's actually um, uh, an objection that I actually get fairly often now. The first time I heard it, I thought it was such a bizarre objection that it couldn't be very popular, but then it started to kind of pick up speed a little bit, this idea that life doesn't begin at fertilization because it began, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of, of years ago. And, you know, that just seems to kind of, you know, never mind the science of it, just philosophically, it doesn't make a lot of sense because if you can't tell when human life begins because human life is a continuous process and it began thousands and thousands of years ago, well, then who's to say it's not wrong to kill you as an adult or as a child? There has to be some yeah. objectively observable point that we can point to to say this is when a human being's life begins and this is when we should start protecting it. Right. That's right. And and I try to drill down on this question with, with people. And, you know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you've uh, followed too many of my uh, engaging discussions with people, you know, abortion doctors, uh, people on the pro-choice side. I'm just trying to engender better understanding. You know, at the end of the day, when they're, when they're accusing all pro-life people of being sexist or trying to control women or, you know, not caring about fetuses, I just try to help them understand that there truly is an earnest belief. And the Supreme Court has even recognized this in Casey, that, you know, millions of Americans truly believe in this. And I, I think the other side should at least treat it honestly, and, and they should give you know, even if they don't agree, they should give it some credence. So when I have this discussion, you know, I'll ask somebody, you know, has your life begun yet? You know, are you a human? And right. if, they, if they could say that, then, okay, well, what about when you were five? What about when you're an infant? And then you just kind of trace it back. And that's typically when they want to stop the conversation or make accusations against me because, you know, we could say the cognitive dissonance, the discomfort. Um, which I, I don't want to downplay. That is a, a real experience that they're having. And I know some people use cognitive dissonance as a cudgel. They use it mm -hmm. to show that, that that person has conflicted thoughts, so they shouldn't be trusted. I, you know, I'm, I'm a psychologist. I come from, it, uh, from the perspective of having great sympathy for them and great empathy because mm -hmm. it, it, it's got to be a very difficult experience to cause them to make the kind of arguments they make you know i mean people people conflict with their very core values in trying to defend abortion rights sometimes and, and i mean i can only imagine how um, upsetting it is for them when they are confronted with certain truths uh that don't uh, cohere with their worldview hmm. that's a really good point uh just uh kind of related to that also with the survey data um there's a common objection, and I've heard this from both, uh, regardless of whatever the issue is, from pro-life, pro-choice, conservative, liberal. 
um, whenever survey data comes up in a conversation, uh, one of the first objections is that wording can lead to whatever results a data collector wants it to. And I remember hearing you talk about this was that even a lot of biologists were kind of responded like, this is such a simple question. Why are you insulting my intelligence with such a simplistic question? So how were your questions worded and how did you, uh, how did you control for different variables in the way people were answering? Right. So, I, you know, at least uh, starting at the end, the, the best control for that was posing an open-ended essay question where I allowed them to just speak freely about how they understand when a human's life begins. Um, so that, that was really the quality control to ensure that they're just not affirming a particular wording of a, of a question as correct. Um, but in terms of the, the, the five primary questions, I mean, that's one thing is I didn't leave it to one simple question. A lot of the climate change uh, studies where they look for a consensus of climate uh, experts, the, these were based on like a couple very simplistic questions. Mine were so more so presenting the words of biologists. So I actually looked at embryology textbooks. I looked at statements from biologists. I met with biologists, uh, grad students, as well as professors and postdocs. And I tried to do everything I could to represent the biological view as clearly and as succinctly as possible. So some of the items, they just uh, included a declarative statement, and then others actually included an argument. So, for example, a declarative statement would be something like, a human's life begins at fertilization. Uh, that wasn't the specific wording, but that's just an example. And then um, in, uh, an argument would be, a human's life begins at fertilization because that is when uh, an organism first develops and has a human uh, DNA and uh, develops in the human life cycle. So I gave both arguments as well as declarative statements, and they affirmed both. They affirmed it when I talked about it as mammals, uh, when a mammal's life begins, as well as when a human's life begins. They affirmed that a human's life begins at fertilization, and they've, they also affirmed that a human zygote is a human, which that is something that you know people on the pro-choice side will also try to quibble about, is that they'll say just because a human's life begins at fertilization, it doesn't mean that a human zygote is a human. Right. Yeah. So in other words, sorry. Uh, so in other words, it was, uh, there was, uh, we've said this before, me and Clinton are not in the same room, so we do talk over each other quite a bit. Uh, and then sometimes we do it when we're in the same room. But uh, so there was no real, there was no real doubt exactly what you were asking them to affirm. In other words, Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's a very simple biological classification, right? I mean, th this is the interesting thing. It's, it's almost definitional. Part, part of the reason why there are no alternative theories is because it's based on our, our very way of classifying organisms, right? And once in, you know, I think it was 1828, the first researcher discovered that all mammalian life starts as zygotes that was when we understood that there was a clear starting point for every, for every mammal's life, including a human's life. Um, so it, it's just, it's so straightforward. And that's why some of the bio, biologists had suggested I was insulting their intelligence or I was wasting their time with that question 
because when they were attending to the question as, a, as solely a biologist, it's just, I mean, it's like asking how many hydrogen uh, molecules are in uh, water. It, it, there, there is no question, right? Based on everything we know, it, it's, uh, it's just really simple. Um, now, most of the pushback was more ideological. So some biologists said, yeah, it's a human, but it doesn't deserve rights. I can admit as a biologist it's a human, but that doesn't mean that I oppose abortion. And that was totally fine. That, that survey had, as far as I'm concerned, it had nothing to do with abortion. It, it was simply about when does a human's life begin? Is a human's eye go to human? And their answer was very clear. Yes, it seemed they were a little paranoid that uh, you were trying to use the information and gathering in the surveys towards some kind of uh, pro-life uh, extremist ideology or something. That's right. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about the objections from some of the biologists, but there's a, a certain uh, professor of philosophy that I wanted to ask you about, uh, Nathan Nobis, who, uh, for anyone who's not familiar with him, he's an associate professor of philosophy at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, he recently wrote a book called Thinking Critically About Abortion, Why Most Abortions Aren't Wrong and Why All Abortions Should Be Legal, uh, which I'm actually responding to on the Secular Pro-Life uh, blog. But he wrote that book to try and elevate the conversation on abortion, which is a cause I commend. But ironically, he actually attacked the straw man of the pro-life argument in that book. And I've interacted with him some in a Facebook group we're both in and called him out uh, you know, for his straw man. But it seems that you recently got into a similar discussion with him. Uh, Nathan uh, kind of put it out over Facebook that he had had a discussion over a, over a, a, I guess, kind of a disagreement between what the argument that he has concocted that he thinks is the pro-life argument versus what the pro-life argument actually is. That's right. So, and just as a little background, so he emailed me right after, I believe it was the first Daily Wire piece came out over the summer. And I saw it as a great opportunity for, for me to be able to work with another academic. And it, it seemed like his goals were aligned with mine. And so I felt like, you know, let, let's just say, um, and I want to make it clear, my dissertation was not the work of a pro-lifer. If, mm -hmm. uh, if I were a pro-lifer, I would have never recommended at the end of the dissertation like I did that a compromise between both sides would be uh, first trimester abortion access. That's something so, that, you know, personally is not something I would support. But I, I when I wrote that dissertation, I was writing it as a mediator. I was able to compartmentalize, put my, myself to the back burner, and truly make a re recommendation based on my training as a mediator, my training as a lawyer, and my training as a researcher. And I'm sorry, were you about to ask the question? Oh, no, I was just going to ask, so did you write the dissertation before you became pro-life, or were you just kind of setting your pro-life views aside to just act as mediator in the case of your dissertation? That's right. Yeah. I, as far as I was concerned as a graduate student and um, as somebody trying to do science, it's not, it's not responsible for me to allow my personal beliefs or my ideological beliefs to drive my, my research and my empirical work. Now, other people might disagree, and definitely if you read a lot of dissertations, you're going to see a lot of that person's personality and their belief system. But as a, as a trained mediator, as a neutral third party, 
it was so important for me to be completely above reproach in that regard mm -hmm. because people could not trust the recommendation of a mediator if they feel that he's leaning on one side or the other. And I worked, I, you know, it was a painstaking effort to ensure that that document was totally in the middle. And I, I, I would welcome any, anybody to talk to me about ways I could have improved it, but I am really confident that I, I provided a, a true full faith argument for the pro-choice side as well as the pro-life side. Um, but with, you know, Nathan Novus, uh, when he contacted me, while I was very excited at the beginning, it quickly became clear that he wasn't as interested in honestly representing the pro-life side. And that was, you know, our initial discussion was me just helping him to see some of these linguistic or semantic differences where I, I just kind of felt that he, he didn't understand how different it is to say something like human life versus a human life. And I know that seems pedantic and mo most people won't see that distinction, but the abortion debate is so heavily grounded in these, you know, it's a semantic minefield. There's all these careful differences. And I think for people, especially for academics, to have that kind of debate, you really have to have a mind for that. You have to be really careful. Um, and, you know, just with a human life and a human's life, the, the best example for that is, you know, something like your elbow cell or your toenail, that, that could be argued as human life because as an adjective, it, it does come from a human organism, but it wouldn't be a human's life because a human is an individual organism developing in the human life cycle. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, on that note, uh, Nobis wrote uh, a blog article uh, called When Does Life Begin and Our Fetus is Human, uh, colon, Two Bad Questions to Ask About Abortion. And um, in that article, he stopped just short of calling your question a, a dumb question, but he certainly called it a bad question. Uh, his response was basically the same as responses that I get at the street level from non-philosophers, that it doesn't right. matter if fetuses are alive or human because we kill lots of living things, and even our skin cells are human. He seems to assume that your argument, or really, he assumes that the pro-life argument is that, quote, anything alive or life or living is wrong to kill. Human embryos and early fetuses are alive, life or living. Therefore, human embryos and early fetuses are wrong to kill, end quote. Um, so you, you touched a little bit on that, but what, what do you think of Novus's formulation of that argument, and what do you think of his points generally? Well, I tried to stay open-minded. I asked him where he found that syllogism because I, I thought that it was possible that he had just found a, you know, a pro-life example that wasn't the most robust or the one with the most teeth. Um, mm. But then he kind of tried to insult my intelligence and you know explain what a syllogism was to me, as if I didn't know what it was. Uh, then he he went on to explain that he came up with it, that he didn't uh, find it anywhere. So mm. at that point, I mean. It's one of those hard things, especially because I'm a trained mediator. I want to give people the benefit of the doubt for as long as possible. Uh, right, but at right. the end of the day, the, the easiest way for me to explain it is what he described as my core argument or as the core pro-life argument. It's, mm -hmm. it's so easily dismissible that, yes, characterizing it as a straw man is, is honest, and that's, that's exactly what it is. 
I don't mm-hmm. I don't like to call that out. I don't like to make those accusations, but you know, let's call a shot a shot. And that's that's really what it was. And unfortunately, as philosophers, I mean our goal really should be steel manning the other side, the opposite of right. strong man, right? To, right? to develop the most robust form of the other side and I mean, really, that's that's what I tried to do in terms of talking about abortion rights uh, as you know a form of self-defense. Um, but unfortunately for him, and if you read through his book, I think it just becomes abundantly clear that he uh, he's really trying to advance his cause uh, without having a mind towards being conciliatory or you know actually impacting the other side in a meaningful way. I, I think I think he's just kind of writing to his audience. Right. I read yeah. through that. I read through your exchange with him and it was honestly it was pretty painful to read and it was actually I would say very embarrassing uh to see an academic uh stoop so low in order to try and make his opponents look basically look like fools and unfortunately made himself look like a fool in the process. It was pretty it was pretty sad actually. That, yeah, that's my reaction. It's just unfortunate. I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in, in University of Chicago. That place is a lion's den. You know, these are some of the smartest people. I, I'm not that smart of a guy. I was just really lucky to have great educational opportunities and a lot of, you know, time to develop my mind and develop my thinking on this. And, I mean, it's it's just one of those things where, unfortunately, there are levels to academia and 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 this is you know it's, it might not even be a matter of intellect it might be just dictated by how emotionally involved somebody is with with this right so, and this is something the post the the pro-life movement talks about a lot in terms of post-abortive people and i definitely i feel like the more i see somebody get to a rational anger or let's say in the, the case of um that ac- academic you know kind of trading on his integrity to score points, that's one of those situations where a flag is raised for me and many other pro-lifers, and it it seems to suggest maybe there's something more there, because, you know, why are they being so greatly impacted by what should just be, you know, open and honest dialogue? And I mean, if anything, I think think pro-lifers have more of a reason to become emotional when talking about abortion, when you consider they're aware that 56 million humans are being killed in abortion each year around the world. I mean, think a a billion humans have been killed in abortion since the year 2000. That's, that's what we're talking about, right? When we, when we advocate for fetal rights, we're trying to fight for what is essentially the most discriminated group in, in human history. If you look at just human death toll. So, I mean, I, I think we would have the excuse, to, to become emotional and irrational, but because they're the dominant group, at least in you know modern culture, we we've had to become the best version of ourselves and come up with the best arguments. And in that way, I think it's actually been a boon. It's been a real blessing for the pro-life side, where the pro-choice side, I think they've just kind of become weaker in their argumentation and their rhetoric, whereas the pro-life side, I think they've never been stronger. Right. Yeah, I think it's very commendable to uh, want to give the other side the benefit of the doubt and, you know, make sure you're you're understanding them correctly before saying anything against them. And, and that's one reason why I was originally 
so kind of excited about Nathan, Nathan Nobis's book because it's not very often to find a pro-choice person who argues that they should be taking pro-life people seriously. Obviously, you know, philosophers are trained to do that, but you don't often see, you know, pro- pro-choice people trying to elevate the abortion discussion. And I, I thought that was really cool until I actually started reading his book and then, you know, realizing that he, he doesn't exactly take all of, all of his advice. And so that was kind of a disappointment. Um, so, so moving away from, from that now, because I kind of wanted to get back to a couple of the objections that you received from the biologists who took your survey. Uh, it seems that you did cause a bit of a stir. Uh, so, some of them, I mean, you know, some of the cr- criticisms didn't, real, didn't read like they were actually written by academics. Um, but I wanted to ask you about a couple of the criticisms that you mentioned in the Quillette article. One biologist said, quote, sorry, this looks like it's more of a religious survey to be used uh, to misinterpret by radicals, to advertise about the beginning of life, and not a survey about what faculty know about biology, end quote. And another one said, quote, the relevant biological issues are obvious and have nothing to do with when life begins. That is a nonsense position created by the anti-abortion fanatics. The relevant issues are the health cost carrying an embryo to term can impose on a woman's body, the cost they impose on having future children, and the cost that raising a child imposes on a woman's financial status, end quote. Uh, were these criticisms from biologists who rejected the claim that human life begins at fertilization? Do you remember? Or yeah, and uh, just briefly, I, I should have uh, you know thanked Professor Nobis. I do want to say I, I thank him for engaging with my work because nobody from the left, nobody uh, who's pro-choice has done it in even a passing way. So the fact that he wrote something about it, I, I commend him on even engaging with the ideas instead of ignoring it like so many do. Uh, because they don't want to give it oxygen. Um, but moving on to your, your question. Um, so I remember looking through the negative responses because, you know, I have a ton of data and I'm a data nerd. So I've spent a lot of time analyzing all kinds of questions from, you know, my significant data set. And I think I remember there being no difference uh, in their responses uh, in terms of affirming a human's life begins with fertilization and then having the vitriolic responses that I saw in their essays. Um, it's interesting to see some who rejected the notion that there's a biological dimension of when life begins, when a majority of biologists also said that biologists are most qualified to determine when a human's life begins. So you know how um, I think you had mentioned earlier that Americans, it was 80% of them chose biologists out of a list of biologists philosophers, religious leaders, Supreme Court justices, and voters. That means when they hear the question, when does life begin, they see it as a biological question of when it actually began and not when should we see it as having begun from a philosophical perspective or when should we treat it as a person from a legal perspective. Um, So even biologists agree that it's a biological question. Um, now, them trying to move it to, you know, this should be a discussion about uh, abortion as a form of harm reduction, and, and when they try to move it out of the realm of the biological discussion, again, th- those are kind of just opinions, and, and everybody is entitled to their opinions born out of their ideology, but at least with the biologists, I was just engaging them as the content experts. I, I saw it as I was mediating, mediating a dispute between a husband and a wife, 
and they're having a dispute about, you know, who had bought the dog in, in terms of who should get to keep the dog. And l- let's say they, um, they're getting a divorce. They decide that uh, whoever can prove that they bought the dog uh, gets to keep it. And then they say, well, I remember, you know, my sister was there with us when we bought it. We can consult her. I don't really care what the sister has to say about who they think should keep the dog. I just want to know who, uh, who bought the dog. That's why I'm consulting the sister. And that's how it works with the biologist. I don't think biologists are any more uh, particularly situated to determine whether or not fetuses deserve rights, whether abortion is homicide, whether abortion is immoral, particularly anything when it comes to abortion. I just want to know, is that human zygote a human from a biological perspective? Mm. Yeah, my, my reason for kind of pinpointing those those two criticisms specifically is because I was sure. wondering if, if those were uh, biologists who rejected that biological claim or if they accepted the biological claim but uh, rejected it for a different reason. Because the first person said his view that life begins yeah. at fertilization can be misinterpreted by radicals rather than what faculty know about biology. And the second person said the relevant biological issues have nothing to do about when life begins. And social sociological factors affecting the woman have a bearing on when life begins. And so I was kind of curious if they're confusing the philosophical right. question of personhood with the biological question of when human life begins or if there was kind of something else going on there. Right. So there, there were some that rejected there being a biological component or feeling like the philosophical or legal component was more important. Um, I actually have one, and I can't remember those two specific examples, how they answered. Um, but I, I even had one person say, I know that it's a human from biological perspective, but I chose to answer in such a way that you know, couldn't be used against abortion. Uh, by the Supreme Court or, uh, you know, by anybody. So some made it clear that even though they recognized it as a question of biology, they wanted to answer strategically, either to ease their their conscience or just strategically to protect against fetuses being granted rights. And, I mean, I think that's what really undergirded most of the negative reactions that I got that at the end of the day, they understood there were stakes to this. That's why I had uh, a professor from my own school. Uh, They were the faculty chair of our ethics committee, and they reached out to me saying that it seemed like my survey was uh, just designed for a legal campaign and that there's no merit to it, and I'm actually trying to change the opinions of the biologists which, I mean, that's an interesting thought that I would somehow be able to change the biological understanding of biology professors um, by asking simple questions. But uh, so she sent me this email, and then an hour later, you know, after I hadn't responded, uh, they sent back an email uh, retracting that statement, saying that they shouldn't have sent it, and they apologized. Um, that's, That's really kind of an interesting moment that says a lot about all of my experience is that people wanted to stop it for strategic, for legal reasons, because they, they, at the end of the day, I think they didn't trust that abortion rights could survive in a world where we recognize fetuses as humans. And this was even shown by one finding. So I, I asked pro-choice people if it became common knowledge 
that a human's life begins at fertilization, would support for abortion access go down, and would abortion rates go down? And sure enough, it was over 85% for both questions. Pro-choice people believe if we believe a human's life begins at fertilization, abortion rates would go down and support for legal abortion access would go down. Hmm. That's, uh, thank you for that. That's very informative. Um, kind of changing tasks or changing topics a little bit. Uh, there is, a, I guess, an objection. The whole It's called a fallacy of expert witness that, you know, you can't really arrive at a truth claim based on counting noses, I guess is how it goes. Um, and so I guess the first question would be, how did you select uh, your survey respondents as biologists? Uh, did you have a certain methodology like, okay, this is the degrees they work on. This is the type of biology they work in. They work in research more than, say, for a biotech firm. And uh, kind of just uh, walk us through the methodology of how you selected who is going to receive the survey. Right. And you are 100% right. I had no intention of being fallacious. Um, yeah. The, the study does not prove that life begins at fertilization, right? Uh, a human's life does not begin at fertilization because 96% of biologists said so. It already right. begins at fertilization. All I'm trying to do is show how many people agree with that, you know. Um, but, yeah, certainly it doesn't matter how many affirm or, or disconfirm a view. It is either true or it isn't true. Now, as to how I selected biologists, I, I, I sent out surveys. Well, first off, I collected the contact information for, I, I believe it ended up being upwards of 70,000 biologists from around wow. the world. So what I did was I found multiple rankings, uh, college rankings websites that listed colleges from around the world, colleges in America, and I developed this list of over 1,000 schools. And then I went to their faculty pages one by one, taking down their name and their email address. So as long as you were listed as a faculty member, and there, were, there was a very small percentage of postdocs, it was predominantly biology professors. Um, now, as, as for why I selected them and not, let's say, um, uh, industrial biologists or professional biologists, it was simply because it's, it's harder to find the contact information. So, you know, it is a bit of a convenient sample, even though it's funny to describe uh, a study with, you know, uh, thousands of people as a convenient sample. But at the end of the day, we're re researchers on limited budgets, so we have realities, right? So um, these, uh, you know, tens of thousands of academic biologists, that was just the most accessible contact information, as well as you know, it's one thing to work in biology. It's another thing to teach biology. And from a lot of the conversations I had with Americans, they suggested that they would think biology professors would be particularly situated uh, to define when a human's life begins. Hmm. Okay. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, one other uh, common claim. Uh, so you have a lot of people who do dispute that life begins at conception. They bring up other issues like say, measurable brain activity um, or when brain activity begins, post-impotency, um, after the possibility of twinning is available. Why do can biologists pretty much agree that conception is the starting point and not any of those other marks? Well, because I think they, they understand that those are developmental steps. 
those, those are developmental landmarks within the human life cycle. But by virtue of the human life cycle being uh, defined as beginning at fertilization, there really is just no question that whatever exists at fertilization would then be a human too. I mean, it's almost like if you're watching a baseball game, two pitches in, you're watching a game. It's not like the game is any more or less of a game in the ninth inning or the first inning. The, the entirety, the, the entire duration from beginning to end is, is ostensibly the same thing. Now, it might, might take different forms, and obviously we grow in complexity throughout our lives. Uh, but in terms of whether or not that thing is a human, you know, there's nothing that says one needs to have fully developed executive functioning at 25 years old to be a human, that you need to be able to sexually reproduce um, in, you know, let's say your early preteen years, that you need to be able to walk like a toddler. No, none of those things are necessary for the organism to be described or classified as a human. Those are just, you know, different enhanced levels of being a human. And I think this actually comes out of certain cultures have actually defined, um, defined life beginning at like two years old or different points in the human, uh, in this human life cycle uh, simply because there was a low, low chance of survival up until that point. So they didn't want to imbue personhood or humanity on that child until they knew it would survive. And I think this is why we see a lot of the arguments that suggest, you know, because there's some who report that 50% of zygotes do not implant, uh, that they're not humans on that basis. It would just mean that human life is very precarious in the beginning stage of life, it doesn't mean that they're not a human. Hmm. Okay. Right? If 99% of infants uh, died of uh, SIDS, you know, sudden infant uh, death syndrome, uh, it wouldn't mean that they weren't humans from a biological perspective, right? Hmm. You know, somewhat related to that, I was reading uh, uh, abortionist Samuel Rollins, his book, Abortion Care. It's a medical textbook, but he has a lot on answering pro-life arguments in there. And he makes the mm -hmm. point, it, it's a bit of an interesting point. He says that putting the beginning of human life at conception is a really arbitrary point, or is an arbitrary uh, point to put the beginning of life at, uh, whereas you have all these other, other uh, events in the life cycle where you could put it at. It's a really bizarre claim, but it sounds, it's, seems pretty related to uh, why biologists select the beginning of life and instead of those other points. Sorry, maybe I should rephrase that. So abortionist Sam Rowland, yeah. he, he claims that it is uh, an arbitrary, arbitrary to say the life begins at conception, but mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense what you just explained is those other events are literally just that. They're just events during that life cycle. They're part of one large cycle instead of the beginning of a new cycle. Exactly. And, and I mean, that's the whole thing is, you know, we could have been designed in very different ways. It could have been that for whatever reason, uh, we didn't, we didn't take on our genetics until the last month of pregnancy, right? It could have been some unformed chance uh, that was solely the woman's DNA. And then for some reason, you know, it could have been different, but it wasn't, right? It, as it is, I mean, and I, it's so hard for us to conceptualize this. It's something I work on a lot, even in ingraining this in my own mind. 
But that single-celled zygote, it is an organism with your genetic code that that exists in the same way that you do today. Yes, it's, it's a lot simpler, but it, that has just grown in size and complexity to be the, you know, six-foot, uh, 30-year-old man that you might be. Um, but that was that organism existed the whole time. It's not as if that organism died off like so many of our cells do. That organism has stayed alive throughout the whole life cycle. And I, I think that's, as you can see, I'm not, I'm not the best at articulating it just yet. Uh, I give a lot of pro-life talks, uh, helping people understand how to have compassionate conversations about the abortion debate. Sometimes it's a little more eloquent than others. But there, there's something to really internalizing this notion that that single-celled zygote, you know, so many pro-lifers try to babify a, uh, a fetus. They want you to focus on their fingernails and their toenails, and they want to focus on their eyelashes, and they want to help you visualize it as a baby. But I, I go a step further, and I think we need to take the next step and be able to see that, that single cell as a human, as no less of a human than you or me. You know, the fact that an infant can't walk and we can, our minds don't go to, well, that, that infant must not be a human. So why, why are we dehumanizing that, that single cell zygote? And that's because I think it is just kind of hard for humans to, to process that because it does look so dissimilar. But, you know, from a scientific perspective, there is no difference. Hmm. That makes sense. Thank you. Um, you also spoke a lot about your mediation, uh, your work in mediation, and uh, especially from coming from a law background. Now, a common objection that is also raised is that if we recognize fetuses as human beings, uh, that necessarily means an unjust infringement upon the rights of women. Uh, what would you say to a, a claim like that? Yeah, so I, I don't necessarily think that one entails the other. So. Um, as, as I described in my dissertation, one, you know, I, I kind of see there being three steps to the whole abortion debate. I, I think these three steps distill the whole debate. You know, is a fetus a human? Is it deserving of legal recognition? And does its rights supersede uh, a woman's rights? You know, and uh, or does it, when does it supersede the, the woman's rights? So as far as I'm concerned, and, and you can see this in certain works like Judith Jarvis Thompson's or Peter Singer's, you know, certain pro-choice philosophers, you can recognize that a fetus is a human. You can even recognize it as a person. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to find that abortion is an unjustifiable homicide. It is a homicide. That's already been established by showing that it's a human. But in terms of whether or not it's justifiable – we could use whatever principles we want. I mean, we, you know, there could be a, a, a society that isn't rooted in equality. If, if there is such a society, then they could say, yeah, they're humans, but that doesn't mean that they deserve equal treatment. In a society like America, because we have self-defense principles, you know, one could actually argue that even though it's, it's a human, even though it's a person, even though it deserves rights, it's right to life is secondary to the woman's right to self-defense, which is a core concept of the self-defense doctrine, right? For example, Nate, you have, the, you have the right to life, you're a person, you have full constitutional rights, 
But if you pose a certain kind of threat to another person, then they could kill you with impunity. So the same thing would exist here. Now, it's, it's hard to make the claim by a fetus just surviving in a woman's body, whereby there's only a, you know, about a 1 in 5,000 chance of her dying from childbirth, that that would be a, a justifiable form of self-defense. But that's certainly a road one could go down. So to your original question, when they say that that would necessarily mean that, you know, they would necessarily infringe on a woman's rights, that's not necessarily the case. Hmm. Okay. And now, uh, one last question on this topic. What are some other of uh, the objections that you have heard personally, and then how would you respond to them? So, okay, let's think. So what are some other um you know, I, I guess some they want to quibble about what it is to mean what it means to be a human versus a human being versus a person, uh, and I really think that's one of those um, one of those negligible differences. I don't I don't think it's a significant difference when if, if you have two people with who really want to build common understanding, if you lock me in the room with. Any, Hey, Steve, I think you just cut off real quick. Yeah, did we lose Steve? I think so. He cut off, and I haven't heard him yet. Okay, we'll give him a, we'll give him a few minutes. Yeah, his uh, call just dropped. We'll uh, give him a few minutes to see if he, see if he can uh, reestablish communication with us. Uh, uh, yeah, otherwise, uh, maybe he might contact you over Facebook. But, uh, yeah, so we'll wait a few minutes, see if Steve reconnects. Um, in the meantime, we don't have any commercials to play, do we? <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. And, unfortunately, uh, since this hasn't happened before, I haven't really had any topics prepared in case uh, the caller drops out. So, okay, so he just uh, he just called back. For the future, I'll, I'll have some backup topics prepared just in case. But uh, hey, it does look like. Yeah. Uh, real quick, maybe when we before we post the actual episodes of the uh, podcast page, maybe we can cut this part out. Well, uh, it's 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 live and it'll be posted there. Uh, I will I will go back and and do some post production on this and then re-upload it to the website. Uh, but until I get that done, then it, it will kind of sit on on the website. Uh, but we we will uh, edit this part out in some post production and I'll re-upload it. Uh, but we do have Steve back with us. So Steve, uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Um, so, would you like me to continue with my uh, previous point? Uh, yeah, just if you would. Yeah, just what are some other some of the common objections that you've heard? Right. So, the most common objection that I hear is that yes, a fetus is a human, but it is not a person, and that's because they have a very particularized definition of person, one that is usually grounded in metaphysical or philosophical concepts. So they, they you know, the other thing is they actually create a definition that forecloses the possibility of a fetus being recognized as a person. So when you're, when you're trying to define person, especially in the abortion debate, it's not necessarily honest or even-handed to define it in such a way that, that eliminates the possibility of a fetus being recognized as a person. Um, and that's why when you look to legal authorities, which that's where personhood, at least if you're having a legal discussion of rights, 
that's that's where personhood matters. If you want to talk about morality, then yeah, we could wax poetic for hours and you know debate about what it means to be a person. But if we're talking about the law, it really comes down to what legal authorities say. So under Article 6 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights put out by the United Nations, it says that everyone is, require, is, uh, is deserving of recognition as a person under the law. So that shows that by virtue of being a human, you are a person for the sake of uh, human rights concepts, as well as, you know, based on their authority, they recommend that every country recognize a human as a person. And then if you look to the Supreme Court, uh, multiple justices have suggested that if a fetus is recognized as a human, then it would be a person and it would deserve full constitutional rights under the 14th Amendment. So that's that's just another area where they try to dispute. That's basically between uh, the first and second step of that uh, little paradigm I set up for, you know, in terms of is a fetus a human, is it a person, or does it deserve rights? And uh, when do its rights supersede the woman's rights? Hmm. Okay. Uh, one last question. Uh, since we, uh, since this did come up, uh, especially during the process when you're putting together your study on the on the topic uh, about the cognitive behavior of academics uh, when confronted with views that are contrary. Uh, no, you've done some research on this as well as Jonathan Hyatt and Byron Johnson and some others about when academics are confronted with a view that is contrary to, I guess, the accepted norm. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's starting to become a more common topic nowadays that within academia that there is sort of a groupthink. Uh, what, is, what is the research you've done on that topic and uh, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, what's so disillusioning about it for me um, I would say it's because I always assumed, you know, and this was pretty naive, that uh, academics were kind of above the fray, that they were the arbiters, that they were, they were pursuing the life of the mind, and they didn't get caught up in the politics of the day, that they called, called it like they saw it. They, they just worked from an objective view, you know, and uh, unfortunately, they are just as susceptible to, let's say, motivated reasoning, um, cognitive dissonance in the same way as Americans. So during my dissertation hearing, uh, one of the most impressive people you'd ever meet and probably the most impressive person I've ever met, uh, just a towering intellectual, he had asked me, if a fetus is a human, wouldn't uh, masturbatory ejac ejaculation, wouldn't that be you know, mass murder? And I mean, I, I almost can't even believe I had that experience, that he would, he would not see the difference between what a human sperm is and what a human, uh, human is. Uh, after all the time we worked together and he read through all of my writing, uh, that, that kind of argument seems like something, you know, we'll say a grade schooler or a high schooler would make, because anybody who has any understanding of biology sees that there's a difference between a haploid cell, uh, a sperm cell, that hasn't fertilized an egg, that isn't developing in the human life cycle, to compare that to a zygote. Um, but I think that was just a real keystone moment for me to see just how deep this runs. And it, it's essentially like the mind is trying to fight out against dangerous ideas that threaten one's peace as well as their identity. 
So this is, you know, when you talk about uh, Professor Height, when you talk about um, uh, different researchers who've looked into this, at the end of the day, we didn't develop to recognize truth. Humans really developed to agree with each other because it was too dangerous to be removed from the huddle, to be shunned by your peers. Because we're such a social species, we developed to be able to stay in that huddle, to stay in the group at all costs. And this is why you know, one of the most famous psychological experiments involved uh, a professor putting up two lines on a board. Let's say one was six inches long and one was one inch long. And in the room, there were 20 people. 19 of them were in on the study. They were you know, Confederates working with the professor. And he asked them, are those lines the same length or are they different lengths? 19 people, you know, the 19 working with him, they all said those two lines are the same length. And then by the time they got to the 20th, a lot of people said it's the same length too. So they, they, they either didn't want to go against the group or they even said, man, maybe I'm, I'm wrong. Maybe I don't understand what it means to be equal because they saw 19 other people say it. So I, I think that's, that's really important here, as well as the identity risks. So what would it do to a, a pro-choice person if they had to admit that it is a human, that it is the greatest form of mass homicide the world has ever seen, and that that human might have rights? The cost to them is so great in terms of they have to recognize that they were wrong all along, that they had lied, that they, uh, you know, and it also risks the possibility of alienation. What would that mean for a pro-choice person where all of their friends are pro-choice and now they come out and say, well, actually, I believe it is a human. W- would they be accepted or would they be shunned? And hmm. this could also have financial costs. So what about I'm dealing with somebody who works in the pro-choice space? You know, if they recognize that it's a human and they risk the possibility of becoming pro-life, they could lose their livelihood. Basically, there, there is a tower that works against them recognizing this simple truth. And, th- and that's why it's not – I don't really feel it's my job or it's the province of pro-lifers to convince pro-choicers that they're wrong or, you know, I think they should try to educate them and, and, and share information, maybe put a pebble in their shoe. But at the end of the day, I really think it's about education. And I think so many of these pro-choice people, if they would have simply been taught that a human's life begins at fertilization from a young age, they would, they would have very different thoughts today. And unfortunately, they were robbed of that opportunity. Yeah, well, uh, Steve, we're actually coming up to the end of our time together here. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, so I believe my uh, Twitter handle is at uh, Dr. Steve Jacobs. Um, it, you know, a- after this media storm, basically, if you if you Google Steve Jacobs abortion, Steve Jacobs when life begins, you can find uh, there's there's been like a ton of articles that came out. College Fit, Daily Wire, Quillette, like you mentioned, or, or like Steve Jacobs, uh, uh, anti-choice extremist, or something. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, one it's probably out there. Right. Yeah. I, and I mean, that's, I think that's been the most surprising thing about this experience is that really there hasn't been a backlash from the other side. And I could only assume that it was just start, smart strategy. 
that they don't want to give the story more oxygen. They would mm-hmm. rather hope that we all forget about it rather than engaging me um, because obviously, you know, my position is very simple and it's, it's basically indisputable. So they figure let's just ignore it instead of uh, talking out against it. And that's why I did appreciate Professor Novus uh, for at least engaging in it. Yeah, so uh, Professor Novus, if you happen to catch this uh, this broadcast, thank you for, for engaging. And uh, <laughs> Steve, uh, thank you very much for, for joining us today and coming here to talk about your research. Oh, guys, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I, I wish this would have been in person. I'm I'm a bit of a talker, but I appreciate being, you know, around people. But uh, I think it, it went well, and I really appreciate some of your very insightful questions today. Well, thank you very much. Thank um, you very much, Steve. Yeah, so uh, if you, the listener, uh, also appreciated the uh, the conversation that we had with Steve here today, uh, feel free to share our, our podcast around your uh, social media platforms. Uh you know we're on uh, we're on iTunes, we're on Blog Talk Radio, and we have a, a Facebook page dedicated, and so you can rate and review us there, uh, which also helps other people, uh, you know, get the kind of get get the word out about our our podcast, and especially when we have great uh, interview uh, interview guests like Steve Jacobs today. And so now this is a, a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to the Life Training Institute website, which is www.prolifetraining.com, and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. Uh, or you can donate to the podcast specifically. Just indicate that in the notes section if you want the uh, donation money to be uh, earmarked for the podcast. And donations are also tax deductible. Now, uh, some upcoming events that we have. Uh, Nathan is actually uh, adding one as we speak here, but I'll probably let him uh, take over to talk more about uh, the one that, that he has coming up. Uh as far as myself, uh, I'm going to be in New Orleans, Louisiana in the beginning of January at the Defend 2020 conference. I'm going to be uh, giving a talk during one of the breakout sessions. And uh, it's a week-long conference, but my session will be Wednesday, January 8th at 12.30. And my specific topic will be on how Christians should think about bioethics. And another uh, event I have coming up is at Winthrop University at Rock, in, in the Rock Hill, Charlotte metro area. At, uh, at, at the Winthrop University, we're going to be screening the movie Unplanned, which is the movie based on the trials of uh, Abby Johnson, uh, a former Planned Parenthood director. And that's going to be on Monday, January 27th at 7 p.m. And following that screening, I'll be on a Q&A panel with Melissa Palou of Ratio Christi, as well as the representative of Students for Life. And uh, the day after that, January 28th on Tuesday, I believe I'm going to also be giving a pro-life talk at their Ratio Christi meeting as well. But uh, I'll, I'll have more information on that um, as, as I receive it. And uh, Nathan, I, I see you've got one coming up here too, so why don't you go ahead and, and briefly mention that. I just want to mention to our listeners that uh, both myself and Clinton will be at the March for Life this next month in Washington, D.C., and we will also be attending the Pro-Life Summit the next day. I believe the March for Life is on the 24th. 
which I believe is a Friday, and then the summit's on Saturday, the 25th. So yeah, anybody, I don't have uh, yeah, ahead. I don't have the calendar in front of me, but whatever that Friday is, that's the March for Life, and the Pro-Life Summit will be the day after that. Uh, let's just put it this way. If you're at the March for Life and you happen to also be in Washington, D.C., we'll also be there. So if you, any of our listeners happen to see us, be sure to give us a shout-out. Yeah. Okay, and so those are our, our upcoming events, and we do have another guest scheduled for an interview on the podcast. We're actually going to be bringing on Stephen Napier uh, on January 15th at 4 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, Stephen recently, uh, earlier this year, I believe, re, uh, published a book on pro-life, well, not, not specifically pro-life philosophy, but just kind of philosophy in general. But he also makes a philosophical case against abortion that he calls the argument from moral risk. And so we're going to have him on to talk about that argument that he makes. And, okay, so then that's uh, basically all that we have for today. So we just want to thank you again. Uh, thank you to Steve for, for coming on and talking about this issue. Uh, thank you to Nathan for joining me. And thank you, the listener, for joining us as well. And we will see you at our next broadcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.